Hi, this is Heidi, and this is Parent Town, a podcast where we explore stories of parenting in hopes that they can connect us and maybe make the world a little easier to understand. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Parent Town. This is the first podcast in a series we are dedicating to restorative practices, and I am really excited about it. What is restorative practices, you may be asking? Maybe that sounds familiar. My guests are Natasha and Sam. The three of us sat in my attic and we talked about the philosophy, the history, current work in schools, why equity must always be at the center of this work, and why this is a way of being and not just another program to implement. Do you know if your schools use restorative practices and can we as parents use it? As always, the goal of Parent Town is simple. It's sharing this power of story and wisdom and how taking a moment to listen to others share their stories, we may walk away with a better understanding and more questions. Here are Natasha and Sam's stories. My name is Natasha Lepsinski, and I currently am founder and director of an organization called Dialogue Up. And our work is primarily with schools and organizations interested in investing in relationships to transform their climates. And I'm Sam Coltis, and I work at Community Mediation and Restorative Services, primarily in our school services area. And I do mostly direct service, but we're working in some capacity building areas within restorative practices. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, and thank you both for being here. This is an area that personally means a lot to me. So I appreciate your words and your wisdom and your time talking about what you do and the important work. So let's get straight to the question of what is restorative justice? Wow. <laughs> just, just that little yeah. simple question. Just, just, right, just simple, simple. simple question. <laughs> um, well, thank you for asking it because I feel like the word restorative justice is a word that more people are a bit more familiar with. But if I was to summarize, even go so far as talking about restorative justice and then shifting it to restorative practices in just a one sentence or not even a sentence, but a catchphrase is that it's just a way of being in the world. And then that can be described in a lot more depth, but it's about us building healthy relationships with each other in a way that, and even if the relationship isn't necessarily healthy, but a way of identifying that relationships are the most central to our being and then what happens if a, if a harm happens or a wrongdoing happens? How do we respond to that, knowing that we're all part of one big human family? Mm. Mm-hmm. And as the, the word justice relates to, when, when I'm thinking about the word justice, I think about it in terms of like the judiciary system. So it's a way of going about a justice process as well as like justice in liberation. So justice just mindedness in like a liberation movement and with that being like the the relationship part the making things right through relationship and repairing harm and like rehabilitation through building relationships as opposed to like isolating and taking people out of the system so that kind of covers a little bit of the difference how does that differ from restorative practices yeah i think exactly what sam is saying is so often in our society when we look at what justice means or how do we hold someone accountable or what does that look like? 
we often think of it in a more punitive lens here in the United States mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. if something is done to somebody, we do something in response. And even if people say, well, I don't necessarily believe in an eye for an eye, or maybe they do, but even if they say that our our system kind of, it begs the question, do we really believe that? Because we're often having people pay a fine, do community service, but there's not necessarily the link to the actual harm that was mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then it just becomes a transactional thing where, and you're paying it often to the state, or instead of making the reparation to the individual, it's to this institution uh-huh. instead of an individual basis. And so it puts that humanity back in. Mm-hmm. And then I think the shift to restorative practices is that word I think is a little bit more common in some parts of the United States that use it in the education system, mm-hmm. but it can really be any time that you're in a relationship with somebody and you want to address any harm or wrongdoing, or you want to be on the preventative side of just building, building community and building relationships that make it easier so when that does happen, mm-hmm. you already have sort of a baseline of understanding. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about the history and, and, you, and like the work around the world and how that's come to us? Well, we, we were just kind of talking about there's a couple of ways that restorative ideology is put into practice. And most cultures have a version of this restorative ideology, whether or not they use that word is different, but we attribute the like roots of restorative ideology to indigenous people and indigenous cultures, whether that be North American, but there are indigenous versions of restorative ideology that exist around the world and then came about on their own independently because people have understood that this is a way to be together. Uh-huh. And with that, one of the restorative practices pieces that we use are circle processes. Tell me more about that. That is going to be drawing on the North American indigenous practice of sitting in a circle to make decisions and build community and using a talking piece and speaking in turn with a an object of meaning, holding the honor of the person who speaks and then distributing the value or like the, the decision making becomes non-hierarchical because everybody's voice is included and welcomed and important at that point. And then the decisions are made on the basis of agreed upon values and guidelines. So then you can have an equitable and then mutually accountable and supportive conversation. Mm -hmm. And not to get too off point, but with the circle process, this is something that can be used in many different areas of life. Mm -hmm. All the way from the schoolwork that you do I would imagine it would benefit the corporate world. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That, and that kind of leads into the transformative lens as well, which brings sort of this relationship idea and visual accountability mm-hmm. into other spheres. Mm-hmm. It's not only the justice, criminal harm mm-hmm. spaces that this is relevant. And I apologize, I got us a little off topic about the history of this from around the world, but I know, Sam, you covered it really well. Is there anything more that you'd like to add, Natasha, about like the history of these practices and how that's unfolded into our practices here? Yeah, I, Sam did an awesome job really saying it all. The only other thing I think I would add is that it's almost like sometimes restorative practices or restorative justice will be used as like a buzzword. Mm-hmm. And people mm-hmm. will hear it and think like, oh yeah, I've been trained in that, or oh yeah, I know what that is. And The cool thing, just like Sam said, is that indigenous groups from around the world have known this from the very beginning, that being in community with each other, 
is the way to not only solve problems, but prevent harms. And then what are we going to do to support each other and hold each other accountable? I would almost go so far as saying that then when institutions came in, Mm -hmm. then that's where like it was disrupted, right? right? And so then there's almost been this new response of, oh, we need to come up with something because these institutions have taken away our individuality as well as our group collectiveness and our humanity. And so then we start using these words. And so while I think restorative practices probably gets one of the closest to describing that, I think there's also this recognition that there's some groups around the world that will just use the word peace building or peacekeeping mm. or even uncomfortable with those words or words that we don't have often in the English language mm. that are much more beautiful and much more expansive in describing what it means. Mm-hmm. Right. That helps. Thank you. Can I, I add one sure, more course, thing to that? It, I think it's worth saying that I'm white. I'm a white woman. And that this is an indigenous practice. And one of the things that we do when we have a conversation like this is acknowledge the land that we're on. Uh Um, And I think my understanding, I've looked it up before, and this neighborhood is Ashinaabe, historically. And so part of the using and respecting and honoring the tradition is acknowledging the land that you're on and acknowledging that when we're talking about restoring, the ideology also comes from, like, keeping in mind the first harm, that we're here because this is a colonized country, and a lot of the work that we have to do stems from that. Thank you for bringing that up, Sam. That's important. And I think we forget about that sometimes. I know I do. So we've talked about that history of this work. Can we talk even more about what that history looks like in not only in the United States, but also here in our state of Minnesota? Yeah. So like I said, I think that sometimes when you look at the history of it, you'll hear people talk about in the 70s primarily, and then moving into the 80s, there was a big push for restorative justice, it became kind of that buzzword. Mm -hmm. And again, much like Sam was saying that this isn't something we created and this isn't Uh something that just came along then. Often when you hear the history described, people will talk about that. Like, oh yeah, it was something that just happened in the 70s. No, it's it's been around, Uh but people started using it. And kind of what happened historically in the United States at that time is a lot of judges, there was the soft on crime and then the hard on crime language was getting thrown out. And there was many juvenile judges saying, I'm not sure that this is working. Mm. I'm looking for other alternatives. What does that look like? Mm -hmm. And then in the rise of diversion, then more of these programs started popping up. The advantage to that is then people became exposed to it and could hear more about it. But the disadvantage, of course, is then it then the co-opting really took over. Mm -hmm. And so what started happening is people started looking at it as a a program or a solution. So they would rope it in and say, you know, yeah, let's do a diversion for this this kid. And for those listening that don't know what diversion is, it's a form in the, often the justice system where if someone is arrested or they're penalized for a crime, they'll have some sort of alternative to either expulsion or a sentence in the criminal courts. Um, And if they complete whatever the process is that's agreed upon, Sometimes wipe their record clean, but not always. That mm-hmm. can be a myth sometimes. Or it's a way to reduce their sentencing or reduce what their penalty is. But then, again, sort of with that, people started thinking of it as a tool instead of that way of being. And so on the one hand, it became expansive. But then on the other hand, it became co-opted to such a way that it's... I think that that's kind of the thing that's happening in Minnesota right now is there's mm-hmm. a big conversation around that. Thanks yes. to some people of color and indigenous 
persons that I have just really pushed that conversation mm-hmm. and said enough is enough. Mm-hmm. Like you can't talk about any of this restorative work without just like Sam said, addressing those first times mm-hmm. and not just using buzz- buzzwords like equity, but understanding what that means in the core mm-hmm. to this practice and how we interact with each other. Talk to me more about that equity piece and why that's so important, like central to this work. Well, if you're talking about restorative practices, and, and circle circle is a process and it's also a really good metaphor for the way that um, the, the hierarchy is, tri- the attempt to diminish hierarchy and power, power structures. Um, and so when we're talking about power structures, it is absolutely mandatory and necessary to be addressing inequities and power imbalances because if you're coming into spaces as your true self and you're speaking from your heart and you're trying to build relationships and heal harms all of that stuff is in the room too equity and disparity and oppression all is part of that room and that conversation and I think that when you're acknowledging a harm the person who experiences the most oppression probably has the clearest view of the room. That's one of my favorite statements, by the mm-hmm. way, that Sam says. She says it all the time, and I mm-hmm. love it. I know. I love it, too. I was just thinking, I was like, I should be writing this down more, tattooing it on my... Um, <laughs> That's why we have a moment. microphone. <laughs> but it's absolutely central to the work if we're going to be talking about power and harm. Yeah. Well, thank you yeah. for bringing that up. I know that we talked a little bit about this idea of restorative practices being this way of being in the world and looking at the world and... Could you break it down, like, why is that important versus that it's just, like, this program that we implement into a school, implement it into, like, a nonprofit, implement it into your life? I don't know if holistic's the right word or not, but that's an overall idea and not just a quick fix or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a, maybe a good way to describe it would just be to share a story about a case. It's several years old, and so um, when we tell stories, we often change the identities, and this actually didn't happen in this area. It was in Minnesota, but not in this area. But I was working with a group of youth, and it was referred from a school, and it was a diverse group of, a group of students where we had a Somali youth, an African-American youth, and then there was a couple of white students as well. And what had happened is the school had referred it to us because they weren't sure really at the time if there was bullying or if there, what else was kind of underlying it. So part of our process was to find out what would be the appropriate way to kind of go about this conversation, knowing that we would want to do a circle process, but really deciding we always really want to talk to everybody to understand with depth of what's going on. And so when we were asking the question about equity, that comes into play because one of the things is, just like Sam said, walking in, sometimes you'll even name, like, you can tell that I'm a white woman. I can't imagine what it's like to be um, an African-American student in this particular part of the United States mm-hmm. that's going through X, Y, and Z. Can you tell me more about that? Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes that plays into what's going on. And if we're not able to have that real conversation, then I don't think we should be doing the work mm-hmm. because that does make it a way of being, that you're mm-hmm. able to humanize the systems that are impacting them, the people that are impacting them, their own values. Uh And then a lot of times, too, as a facilitator, it can be stepping back and making an assumption that maybe there are systems that are impacting them. Maybe not. Maybe Or maybe they don't see them yet. And so it's just listening to what what Mm -hmm. they really want, Uh um, what their desire is for out of this process, and not just what the referral organization Uh is looking for. 
And then another key component, I believe, to this work is not just letting it end when that conference ends, mm. but it's that education then within those systems. Uh-huh. So if you're referred from a principal, they might want to know, like, what happened in this case? And it's our job to say, well, first of all, that's confidential. Mm-hmm. But then there is a real opportunity to sit down with that person and say, you know, here's ways this could have gone really wrong. And then here's where it maybe went right but then here's the implications of that. And sometimes it's asking the participants, if we're to go back and share, if it was a school case, in this case it was, if we're to go back and share the results of what happened here, what would you want? And then sometimes it's having an additional circle with the administrators to really share some of their concerns about what's happening mm-hmm. in the school. But it's not just looking at that one incident because we know there's multiple layers. People will say, you know, well, that takes a lot of time and that's hard. But that's also, I think, it's the right thing. Uh It's not about being hard or soft on any harm. It's about doing what's smart and right. And I think that's the way that you do it well. And that's, so you're leading right into something that our friend and colleague Raj and I were talking about earlier today. And probably you'll get to know Raj later on. I hope so. Um, (laughs) But we were talking about... We love Raj. We love Raj. Shout out to Raj. Um, We were talking about... um, He explains things on an importance versus urgency understanding with educators, which means that like when you're thinking about in the example of school, there are many things that are urgent and require attention. And so that is, but then that's a difference between things being important and always being important because consistent urgency creates burnout where importance will continue to be important and you'll you will always find the energy or the time to make important things happen. And the way that that relates to like the program versus way of being idea mm-hmm. is that when restorative practices is regarded as a program, it often gets grouped into that urgency and then caked into the other like teaching practices mm-hmm. and teaching tools, mm-hmm. and, like educators pieces of curriculum. And that doesn't account for the values base. So the basis on which we, we are in relationship based on our values and the values can hold and are the container for bad feelings and hard emotions and hard actions, Uh bad actions. And so the communities that these programs are serving are reflected in those settings. So when you have a school and you're seeing problems in schools, that's a reflection of the larger community and making that not part of the process is a really big mistake and missed opportunity. Uh Absolutely. I'd love to segue a little more into the schools, mm-hmm. uh, just because that's where a lot of your work is right now, among other things. Can you tell me a little bit, because I'm feeling a lot of people that are listening just don't have an idea about what that actually means like in a school. Let's say they see Sam or Natasha at your school. You can assume like, oh, well, they're here with this organization. Um, and what have you been doing in schools? And if you have any personal stories, I'd love to know what do you see as working and what you wish was different. Mm-hmm. Maybe that different part is another question, but uh, let's get let's just focus right now on what you guys are doing in schools and what what do you see is working? Uh, well, the the direct service component often looks like referrals. So when an incident happens in a school, the organization that I work with is deferred to and will then facilitate a restorative chat with the student or students and parents and administrators to try to come up with a plan, repair the harm, and also make sure that 
the youth doesn't get a record because often these referrals will be coming from school resource officers. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of a putting out fires way of doing things. Um, And while it is often, it's really effective in those situations and it really does benefit individual youth by not getting them records. Sure. Um, We have been switching to more capacity building because the cultures of schools don't change when we are facilitating those conversations and when administrators are letting us take take the reins and aren't building those skill sets within themselves. So we've been working more on doing the hospital teaching model of working with administrators, bringing them into those conferences trying to work from within schools on implementation, but also involving community members. Mm-hmm. So what that looks like is not only those referrals, but also we spend a lot of time doing circle with students and coming in and keeping circle for uh, an entire eighth grade for one of the schools in the metro. We facilitate the circle, come up with conversation prompts, But we've transitioned into a point where we are calling on students to co-keep with us so they can build this keeper model so that they have this at at its most sterilized, the the tool of circle, so that they can build their emotional bank accounts and build their relationships, but also have this skill set for when things happen, uh, which is pretty awesome to see. That is pretty awesome. It's like what Natasha was talking about, like you're investing on this side. And you're investing in something that you can't necessarily say, like, oh, well, then here's all the data mm-hmm. about how this mm-hmm. is going to work out. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you know, so getting that feedback from those kids that you guys are working so hard with. Do you guys have any stories, like, off the top of your head that you could share without using any names of kids? There's one in particular. It's not even necessarily a particular student in a story, but something that I've noticed as a facilitator, something that I was internally grappling with when we decided to do this with this group is we wanted to do something that did take it because the year prior I had been working with this school and we were tending to put out fires and the administration was great on listening to you know there's other ways that we could do this and do it well I would say a lot of people might say the best place to start with is with teachers and I really agree with that mm-hmm. starting with teachers starting to do circles with them to help them understand the way of being unpack some of this institutional stuff kind of get to the root of it, and then with students. And this particular school, we'll get there and we'll start doing some of that. But it was really nice that they had a group of administration. Their team had been trained in it and had been working really well with it. And so we said, well, this year, let's try doing circles with the entire grade. And so there's about 288 of the students. And at first, I had the inclination of, well, shoot, if we're doing so many, are we going to be spread so thin that we won't really get to go deep with a smaller group, because that can be hugely impactful, mm-hmm. and I've done that a lot. At the same time, doing such a large group of students at once, it's created this sort of energy that they know that they're all going through this process together. Mm-hmm. And because we did get the whole year, I don't think it would have worked if we were just yes. doing a semester, or I know it wouldn't have worked, but to know that we're we're just focusing on building community. Mm-hmm. And we're, for the first time, asking kids, you know, do you know the names of every student in your class? For some listeners, that might be, well, of course you would know everybody in your class because you grew up and you went to school with the same people from Mm -hmm. kindergarten on. But when you get into larger metro areas, that's not the case. Uh You're shifting schools, you're moving different places. Uh Um, So then what does that look like to build a community? Uh Being able to do that has been 
incredible and so fun. It's so fun. There's 13 year olds are like the smartest people. <laughs> yes, they are. They're so cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. So recently there has been a lot of conflict happening at the school that we're working at and a lot of physical fights. And while kids will fight, it is what it is. There's there's a reflection of kind of a larger school culture and addressing that is different. Um, and we have brought this into circle, into our conversations, mm-hmm. because when we were there the other day, a fight happened mm-hmm. between circles. We then went into circle with our group as planned, and mm-hmm. we were like, okay, so we walked past the hair on the ground that got pulled out of the student's head, and that really impacted me. Mm-hmm. How did this impact you? What, if you were this person, what would you need how do you think the administration should respond? Mm-hmm. What would you what do you what are you looking for in terms mm-hmm. of if there if you need to fight? Like if mm-hmm. if this is a situation that's happening, how does this affect you? And those conversations have become so robust because we have the students there who who are experiencing this and and they have then the opportunity to voice their experiences and voice their concerns mm-hmm. and their needs which wouldn't otherwise necessarily space would not otherwise be made for that. And in some of these circles, teachers are part of this mm-hmm. part of circle, mm-hmm. which I wanted to add, but they are a member of the circle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they are not, they are, they are, there's a, a hierarchy that is dismantled. Dismantled. Mm-hmm. Thank dismantled. you. Thank yeah. you, Natasha. So that um, they are part of that and you're on the same level with your students. Can you speak from any of that, like from what you've heard from teachers or... So after this, in this particular circle that we just had last week, the teacher was sitting in my circle and was talking about, some of the students were talking about how they don't feel like the teachers care or want to engage with them. And the teacher then had the opportunity to say, well, we do care, but obviously that's not being translated. And we don't have the skill sets at this point to... To handle this situation, we're relying on administration to make this happen, and you're feeling neglected because we don't we don't have this skill set, and and we do care, and I want to make that clear, mm-hmm. and wanting to be trained and looking for ways of taking care of each other, they're really interested in it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can speak more to that, Natasha. Yeah, no, I I love what you just said there, and because our groups have gotten so big, Sam and I, we kind of tend to stay in the same room, but we've split up our circles mm-hmm. into being smaller just because we recognize since we're only there, try to meet with all 280 yeah. every other week. Mm-hmm. We split up into two groups, and so I have a circle, Sam has one, and we're in the same room. But I had walked up to that circle afterwards, and they were having that conversation, and I remember the teacher saying specifically, she was so grateful to Sam and so thankful for that space because it was the first time that as an administrator, or not even as administrator, but as a staff, feeling nervous. Mm. And she had talked about, you know, I'm hearing fights in the hall. Mm -hmm. I thought kids were joking, or she wasn't sure. She couldn't tell if they were joking or if a new fight was breaking out, and she was super stressed. And we hear that a lot from teachers, Mm -hmm. that they, just like Sam said, don't have the skills or don't know what to do with it. And so by going through this process, it's humanizing their students so they're not just seeing you know, another kid that wants to get into trouble because these kids don't wake up every day and think, yeah, I really want to be hated by the administration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's not their goal. Even if they, even if in their mind they think, yeah, I'm going to get into a fight today, it's coming from other places. Mm-hmm. And to help humanize them when they're burnt out mm-hmm. is really, is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, 
for the students to feel like their voice is heard in a time when they often don't feel like it's heard. Mm -hmm. When we think about what you've talked about as far as the ideas of restorative practices, how can people who are listening to this sort of say, yeah, and this sounds awesome and this is something I'm really interested in. Mm. How can I just implement this into my daily practice into my everyday parenting into my like going to the grocery store (laughs) you know like into just being a human in the world what would you say first of all I get excited about that yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. I mean like the reason why for me the reason why I do this work is because I honestly believe that if we were doing this intentionally everywhere we would literally be able to have world peace right Mm -hmm. like this is peace building Mm -hmm. at its core But the place to start, you have to start with yourself and you have to get really deep and be willing to reflect on your own issues, your own biases, Mm -hmm. being able to look at, oh my gosh, I just walked down the street and I did clench my purse when a black man walked by. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Am I willing to constantly confront my bias every day all around me? When I'm driving, am I able to notice that, oh, I'm moving from one neighborhood to another and I'm seeing a difference in the economic value of the houses, mm-hmm. just recognizing everything that's going on around mm-hmm. you, and then just the way you show up in the world. I know that's a really broad statement, but I think that if you think about, for some people, so uh, another wonderful woman who I'm sure you'll get to know through this is Hannah Arafat, and um, her and I were talking a few days ago about the spirituality component, and that regardless of you having a religion or not, you're getting in touch with something deeper mm-hmm. in that humanity that we talked about at the beginning of the mm-hmm. podcast. And if you, whether it's through meditation, self-reflection, thought, prayer, whatever it is, what is connecting you to humanity? That's kind of your why. Mm-hmm. And then you just start practicing it, like you said, with your family, holding a circle space, creating a space that's safe. And knowing that safety doesn't always equal comfort. Yes. yes. Because yes. you have That's to important. talk about what's real. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's important. Because there is this sort of like, oh, well, you know, just be really like quiet. And mm-hmm. That's not what it's about. No. Mm-hmm. It might get loud. There might be tears. There's going to be pain. Definitely That's when cussing. you're Right. Mm-hmm. That's when you're getting to the mm-hmm. core of what's going on. I've always mm-hmm. loved the phrase, instead of people saying a safe space, that it's a brave space. Yes. Mm. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's and that's often a value that's put into circle that it, this requires courage. Mm-hmm. It requires courage to show up and and say what you mean every time that you're there, because that's that's also when in my day to day life the way that I have internalized restorative ideology is thinking pretty much at the end of every interaction if my gut feels like something wasn't right, then at every moment I make a point to try to make things right. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if I felt like something was wrong, I'm going to take off my ego and go back and apologize. Like, like whether or not anybody else noticed, I have to apologize mm-hmm. for something or just acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's been a really sort of transformative way of being mm-hmm. and, and not having shame around that. And also, like you're saying, like just being real, like being real and paying attention and being a good listener at every moment and it takes a lot of energy but you build you build that capacity within Uh yourself and in my own life and in my the reason that well I guess maybe we'll ask this question later but the how 
how restorative practices felt so natural for me, all of the words, how they fit for mm-hmm. me. Let's talk about that, Samad. That's a great transition. Like, Let's talk about how these practices came into your lives individually. <clears throat> like, There was a moment where you had like that aha moment. Where, like, yeah. Oh, this feels like what I've been looking for. Absolutely. So I'm a queer woman, and the coming out process was pretty difficult. I'm from a very Catholic family, from a pretty rural space, and we... The we I've been out for like seven years now, and the work that we did, my family and I, to get to where we are now, before I had the words for restorative practices, it looked a lot like restorative mm-hmm. practices mm-hmm. in those conversations. And mm-hmm. we, we have done so much work on our relationship, and it's a really beautiful thing at this point. And that's the way that these, this type of work transforms things. And I mean, I went to college, I studied communication and conflict, and so this was something that came up in conversation. I went to community mediation and restorative services to take a mediation restorative practices hybrid course, and then I started as a Promise Fellow there doing their youth services. And so that's how I sort of came in contact with that. But the words that I got came from a programmatized sense of it where the way that I felt it was from my own life and the way that my story connected to Mm -hmm. it. And that's, and the work that I intended to do the whole time. That's my piece. Yes, that's awesome. What about you, Natasha? Yeah, I love that. Thank you, Sam. We have, her and I, I think one of the fun things about working together in Circle is we'll spend so much time in between just like getting to know each other and having those, Mm -hmm. these kind of conversations. So it just feels like an extension of that. So it's kind of fun. Yes, it is. (laughs) It's very fun, but yeah, it's kind of similar to Sam where I think it came from, I don't know what point in my life, but my, my grandma was a very strong Roman Catholic and so there was sort of this like social justice component to the Catholic religion, but I consider myself an atheist. So then what does that mean mm. in the world? And I think I love a lot of the Catholic teachings and I learned a lot from it. And so whether, you know, I think it's just a culmination of experiences, but for me where I think I started practicing it and didn't even realize I was, yeah. I had done a couple years of AmeriCorps in Jacksonville, Florida. And when I was down there, my placement was at a, it was a housing program for, it was one of the largest homeless shelters, both in the United States and this part of Florida as well. And it happened to be right across from a prison. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing all these, like, I studied sociology in college, so sure. I knew, like, the systematic stuff, but then seeing it right there, like, yeah. okay, so that's, that's a prime example. Mm-hmm. But what ended up happening is they had hired me, a white woman from rural Wisconsin, where I grew up to come into this program and teach, <laughs> to teach other people about, like, basically it was, like, health outcomes, so teaching. they Everybody in the program actually had HIV or AIDS diagnosis, and they had been chronically homeless before being incarcerated, and then now they were transitioning back into the community, and so it's like, what do I have to teach them? I don't Mm. I'm no expert. And so that gut knowledge at like 22 years old being like, no, I can't sit and lecture them. Wow. We have to be in a circle because they have the knowledge. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to create this space. And so I didn't know that's what it was called. And like we would do, we would have speakers kind of come in and do some stuff. And there were times when I would talk about like maybe scientifically how HIV worked or like Uh the education piece but then we ended up just doing it was we started a men's group and a women's group and they would just talk and to be able to say at 22 years old 
that I was with a group of people that had been in prison, mind you, for some of them for 20 plus years for murder, that I felt safer being with them alone in a downtown city. I felt safer with them than I would in other communities speaks volumes mm-hmm. because it, it dismantles that notion that people are harmful, evil human beings just yeah. because they Amazing. have a record. Yeah. And that I felt so safe and wasn't ready to tell my family like, hey, yeah. so. Um, and then one night um, it was a really it was a transitional time for me because it caused some personal PSD stuff that I had to work through for a lot of years and I'm still working through. But a man was shot outside of the building that we were working in. And everybody went to my, like, quote-unquote rescue. Everybody wanted to make sure that they were safe. Mm-hmm. And to be able to say, like, I felt safe surrounded by these men. Yeah. And I feel safe when I go into prison facilities to work with them. I feel safe when I work with these kids, even if the administrators say they're the hardest, naughtiest bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to work in juvenile probation. I felt safe alone with those kids. And mm-hmm. it's because you... You, you're knowing that the human spirit, like, there's so much more. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that harms don't happen. And it's not about being naive. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. about recognizing each other's humanity. We have mm-hmm. to stop criminalizing every action and start humanizing. Thank you, Natasha. I didn't know your whole story. So thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. I feel like we covered a lot of my questions, but I don't want to leave this if you feel like there's more to add that I haven't asked. Um, as far as your work, the world of restorative practices in general, um, the history, the education component, all of that. I just want to make sure that you feel like you've, you, you've said what you would like to say. I have a question for you, which maybe you can just answer your own question about the um, bringing restorative practices into parenting, because neither mm-hmm. Natasha and I are actually parents. Mm-hmm. And Sure, I don't. <laughs> do, I mean, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot, uh, but... Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, it's funny because I feel like my parenting has definitely changed since I, Heidi, have discovered this this world. And it is kind of, it is, it's just, it's just exactly what you were talking about. It's like living differently, it's seeing differently, it's trying to teach my kids that everybody has a story. Mm-hmm. And that you, you need to take a moment and where is this coming from? Where are these feelings coming from? Why do you feel this way? Why are you saying, you know, and, and to take a moment and recognize that it's okay and to not to feel shame if you feel like you have this implicit bias, but to know that there's a way to work through that and there was, there's ways to name it. But then also that it's also just about doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. It's also about doing the right thing. But what does that mean? Like when we tell our kids, do the right thing. Oh, okay. Well, what what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And it's a lot about listening to your heart and it's about listening to other people intentionally. One of my huge annoyances with myself is I'm trying to listen without the intention of speaking. And yes. <laughs> yes. And I try, and, and I, that's something I try to tell myself every day, and that I work on because it doesn't come easy for me. And that's another podcast. But something about the the lines of my kids know what I do, and I'm very open with them about like what I do in schools, and about perspective, mm-hmm. and about just listening. And the more that we get to know each other and our stories, the more that things make sense. This is a very surfacey kind of example, but like if a kid came home from school, and they're like. Billy was acting out. He always acts out and he's disrupting the whole class. And ah, it's, it's so frustrating. I'm like, okay, like listening to that and recognizing, okay, where's that coming from? And then also to maybe give them that opportunity to be like, well, where do you think Billy goes home to? What do you mm-hmm. think Billy's home life is like? 
you know, it could be totally the same as ours. It could be totally different. But just to have that sense of curiousness and empathy for people in the world and their ways, you don't have to necessarily be friends with everybody, mm -hmm. but you have to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And you have to show up. As the littlest kid, I think we can just tell them, you show up and you are, you're curious, you're open, you speak your truth, and you allow others to speak theirs. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. I'm white. I have white kids. I think that's really important for me to make sure that they realize is you let others speak their truth. Right. You don't have to be the first voice to speak your truth. There's others in the room. But yeah, it's definitely just sort of trying to walk the walk and talk the talk. Because I think when we parent, if you're not doing that yourself and they don't see you in action, then I don't think it necessarily is as effective. I remember my parents telling me a lot of things to do mm -hmm. and not to do. But then I would see them do the good stuff or maybe the not so good stuff. That's what made me mm -hmm. think like, okay, when I parent, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do this. But yeah, it's, it's, I think when, you, when you're parenting, I feel like we're all kind of doing the best we can and we're failing forward all the time. But mm -hmm. I think adding the component of like this restorative practice with each other, I've definitely held kind of circle-esques with mm -hmm. my kids. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So my hope for schools is that this is just a natural integration into that system, which is definitely a system. Right. But that... I know, to me, it's a win-win. And like what you mm -hmm. were saying, Natasha, like if everybody could sort of adapt this process, even like little by little, you don't have to mm -hmm. like jump in the deep end, right. be curious about it. I think that's where we as the humans could definitely make progress. Can I add, I so something that when I'm explaining what I do and what we do, a lot of times we've talked about how the process, and sometimes when we are explaining it to kids, I diminished it by saying, I know this is corny, but bear with me. I know this is this, but bear with me. Which doesn't set them up for success. And one of the reactions that we get in terms of accountability, the conversation around accountability, and, and particularly around a, a more conservative ideology, is that is this truly holding people accountable? And is this type, is this way of being like a little too bleeding heart fruit cakey? And my feeling about it is that holding yourself accountable and doing really hard work, like the hard work is relationship building. Yep. And that's and that's something that I really like because everybody, ha trauma is common. Trauma is overlaid with all of this. Everybody's got their stuff and there's intersectionality and there's overlapping things, but everybody's got some layer of trauma in their life. And it's really hard work to be accountable to yourself in that hard stuff. Mm -hmm. And so in explaining that to people who would think that expulsion would be a more suitable response. Right. And maybe you can speak more to this, Natasha. I just wanted to right. yeah. Thank make you, sure that when, when we're talking about that, that that's, that's a major skepticism right. of restorative practices. Yes. Oh, I love that. I'm yeah. so glad you pointed Yeah. Heidi's like, yes. I, I've gotten <laughs> that response, too, right. from a lot of people. Like, yep. Kind of like a little bit like they're trying hard not to roll their eyes. Mm -hmm. Right. Or yeah. like corny and soft. Mm -hmm. Like, well, just suspend the kid and blah, blah. I'm like, yeah. Uh, but Suspend them where? Yeah. Right. right. I know. So it is. It's like... It's, it's an adaptive kind of change, isn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a paradigm shift because of our more punitive mindset. It's mm -hmm. that idea that being hard is going to shift people, and we know that doesn't work. And the, I, one of the most basic examples is looking at, like, the nuclear family 
or who you're living with at the time. Mm-hmm. Because when you have disagreements in the home and a harm happens or a situation happens, do you automatically, like in certain situations, it is appropriate to separate. But is that automatically your go-to? Do you send your kid to the neighbors to be punished, quote-unquote? No, of course not. Why are we sending kids out of school? Why are we sending people away to address the issues instead of including them and figuring out the solution together? Mm-hmm. And it's a hell of a lot harder. Yeah, It's way harder. It takes more time. It takes more resources. Mm-hmm. But it's the right thing that creates that transformative environment. So mm-hmm. it's not easier. No. It's uh, way, way harder. And if you're healing as you go, if you can bring healing with you, and maybe that's how it relates for me back to the idea of parenting that if you are creating healed harm, that is so building. And if you can do that every single place that you go mm-hmm. and in all of your relationships, your life's going to look a lot healthier. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sam. That was a, that's a great phrase to like end this. <laughs> sure. Awesome. No, and I just really, again, want to, from the bottom of the heart, thank you both for being here and sharing your stories and your wisdom about what you do. Again, this is very close to my heart. I just really appreciate you joining me. Again, Natasha's organization is called Dialogue Up. Sam and I both work for Community Mediation Restorative Services, so those are two organizations you can check out. And there's more that I will put on our website as far as allies are concerned or other resources, so you can check those out too. So anyway, thanks, Sam and Natasha. Thank you for having us, Heidi. You bet. Thank you for listening to Parent Town. If you're curious about what Natasha does at Dialogue Up, you can find her in LinkedIn. First name Natasha, last name, I'll spell it for you. It's L-A-P-C-I-N-S-K-I. Her website is coming soon, so we'll throw that up on the website once that is up and running. And Community Mediation Restorative Services, www.communitymediations.com. Org, mediations with an S. Other organizations and allies you should check out are Living Justice Press and the Restorative Practices page on the Minnesota Department of Education website. Again, we'll put all of these links up on our website at www.parent-town.com. Please like and share the podcast on Facebook with your community. That really gets the word out and it helps us. You can listen to us where you listen to all your podcasts under Parent Town Podcast. Thank you to Greg Ward at Studio Arcade and to Park States for our theme music. Again, thank you for listening. I'm Heidi, and this is Parent Town. <laughs>